All right, one of my favorite movies of all time is the highbrow comedy classic, Zoolander. <laughs> now, maybe you missed this movie. It came out in 2001. It was a little too sophisticated for some audiences. But in this movie, Ben Stiller plays the world-famous model, Derek Zoolander. He's one of the greatest male models of all time. Okay, but he's sort of in the, the back half of his career, okay? His primacy in the modeling world is on the decline and he is being replaced by the hot young up-and-comer Hansel, played by Owen Wilson. And early on in this movie, after winning for three years in a row, Derek Zoolander doesn't get the Male Model of the Year award and he's devastated and he runs out of the venue and he falls down by a puddle on the sidewalk and he looks at his reflection and he says, who am I? And his reflection says, I don't know. <laughs> and he says, I guess I have a lot of pondering to do. And so begins one of the great journeys of self-discovery of our time. Long before the, the great philosopher Derek Zoolander was asking, who am I? Human beings were pondering the question of identity personal particular identity. The ancient Greek temple of Apollo built around 2000 BC reportedly had the maxim, know thyself, prominently inscribed on the facade. And maybe the most important autobiography ever written, the Confessions of St. Augustine, written around 397 AD, was Augustine trying to understand himself with all of his complexity, dignity, and depravity in relation to God, others, and the world. And he wrote, a deep and boundless manifoldness, this thing, the mind, and this am I, myself. What am I then, O God? What nature am I? A life various and manifold and exceeding immense. Behold, in the caves and caverns of my memory, innumerable and innumerably full of innumerable kinds of things, over all these do I run. I dive on this side and on that as far as I can, and there is no end. So great is the force of memory, so great the force of life, even in the mortal life of man. What shall I do then, O thou my God? I will pass beyond this power of mine, yea, I will pass beyond it that I may approach unto thee, O sweet light, what sayest thou to me? Across the ages, humans have recognized that the knowledge of self is one of the deepest subjects that we could ever dive into. Questions about identity are a common theme that run through human history. But we also know that questions about identity are a thread that runs through each one of our lives. One way of understanding your own story is as a continuing grappling with questions like, who am I? What is the nature of me? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? But even more, who am I supposed to be? We all have an identity autobiography, and while each one is unique, I bet that I can give kind of a basic sketch for most of us in this room, okay? Chapter one, you're born. Right, that was me, was that you too? Yeah, chapter one, you're born, and almost as soon as you open your eyes, you begin to form a unique little personality. And by the time you're about two years old, that personality is in full swing. My son, my toddler son, Charlie, he knows who he is. He knows what he likes. He knows that he loves trucks and tools and Mickey Mouse. On a deeper level, he knows that he loves to take things apart and try to understand how they work and then try, usually unsuccessfully, to put them back together. 
Right? He knows that he loves to read with mama and to wrestle with dada. It's probably not actually accurate to say that he knows who he is because I don't think that he spends very much time, if any, thinking about his identity. He just is who he is, and he likes that peculiar little person. But sometime between when you're two years old and when you're 20 years old, and by sometime I mean middle school, (laughs) sometime in middle school something happens, okay? Because the things that are unique about you, the touchstones of your peculiar identity become the things that people start to make fun of you for. Your identity becomes the battleground where people inevitably misunderstand and misrepresent and hurt you, and if we can be honest enough to admit it, our identities also become the inspiration and the expression of our favorite sins and idols and the way that we hurt other people. Do you, like me, have vivid, visceral memories from like middle school and high school of putting yourself out there and someone rejecting you or making fun of you and saying, I'll never make that mistake again, or doing that to other people? I have this vivid memory of making fun of one of my best friends, a guy who was later a groomsman at my wedding when we were in middle school because he was like openly into Pokemon cards, right? And me and all my buddies making fun of him in honestly just a vicious, mean way. And we all had Pokemon cards at home too, right? We were just pretending like we didn't, you know? Your particular identity has a lot to do with the ways that you've been hurt by people and the ways that you have caused hurt to people. And to say that it only happens in middle school is really unfair to middle school because it happens when you're little and when you're big. It's happening to you probably right now, today. My son lives as his authentic, wide-open self right now, but that probably won't be the case when he's 20 years old. And the sad truth, the especially sad truth, is that I will be one of the people who messes him up. And so by the time you reach your late teens, your early 20s, you become adept at hiding, at performing, at personal branding and rebranding and re-rebranding so that you don't experience shame and so that you achieve some distorted version of safety and success. And that's when the real work begins. Because from then on, the healthy relationships in your life will be the ones that help you to heal and to grow into your true self. And your unhealthy relationships will be the ones that play along with and reinforce your hiding and performing tactics. And in most of the relationships that the world offers us, by the way, fall into that latter category, especially in a successful place like South Charlotte. Our topic this morning, as we continue our series on human limitedness, on learning to love our limits, is identity. Your personal particular identity. I was walking down the hall before the service and somebody said, hey, what's the, what's the sermon about today? I said, identity. And there are two women out there, Katie Murkison and Lauren Reddick, and they both turned around and they said, oh, yeah, I, I had a conversation with somebody about that this week, right? I said, yeah, we're going to solve it today. We're going <laughs> to figure it out today. We won't even come close to resolving this issue today, but hopefully we'll find a framework in God's word for what it looks like to discover the person that we're truly meant to be. What does it mean that you are a unique, particular human? And is it possible to know who we really are and who we were meant to be? Can we heal from past hurts and live out our true identity and calling? Okay, now before we go any further, all right, I want to preempt two potential pitfalls that might come up with a sermon about identity, okay? Some of you here, today's message is about identity, and you get excited, okay? You love personality tests, 
And even though you've known your Myers-Briggs and your Enneagram number for years, you still love it when somebody sends you a new online assessment. You were one of those people that loved to take those BuzzFeed quizzes on Facebook back in the day, like answer these six questions to figure out which Saved by the Bell character represents your personality type, right? Others of us here, today's sermon is about identity and we get worried, okay? Because we say, okay, here we go, pop psychology mumbo jumbo invading the pulpit, invading the church. Shouldn't we just be talking about God? John Calvin, a leader of the Protestant Reformation and one of the greatest theological thinkers of all time, when he set out to write a systematic understanding of the Christian faith in his book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, right, I would have expected him to begin with some grand statement about the glory of God or the sufficiency of Scripture. Listen to how he actually begins. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But which proceeds and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. The first two sections of Calvin's Institutes are titled, Without Knowledge of Self, There Is No Knowledge of God, and Without Knowledge of God, There Is No Knowledge of Self, in that order, by the way. The two are mutually informing, or at least they should be. And so as we consider this topic this morning, the two guardrails we want to put up are, if you are someone who is naturally inclined to self-assessment and identity psychologizing, that can be a good thing, but it is never an end in and of itself. Okay, and so if you've ever said to someone, right, I'm an ENTJ, Enneagram 8, Kelly Kapowski, whose whose, uh, love language is words of affirmation, so I really need to tell you to tell me how right I am right now. (laughs) That's, That's not what we're trying to do here, okay? You don't really know yourself until you conduct your self-assessment in the light of God's truth and grace. But if you're someone who's inclined to reject self-analysis, someone who isn't very self-concerned or, dare I say, isn't very self-aware, right? That, there, there can be good things about that too, but you won't really know God or other people until you know and relate to them as your truly known, unique, particular self. So we're seeking to know ourselves more deeply and honestly so that we can love God and love others more healthily and consistently this morning. All right, two main points. First, our identities are formed in and by relationships. Or to put it another way, identity is formed in an ongoing dialogue. I'm actually going to say a trialogue here in a minute, okay? But put it another way, your identity is a community project. Now you'll see in your bulletin, like I have to send my outline to Liza earlier in the week than I finish my sermon most of the time. And so you'll see the point there, it says that identity is triangulated. And then I did some further research and found out that that word triangulated is usually used in like a negative psychology context related to like manipulative and abusive relationships. Okay, that's not what I mean there. And so if this is like a situation of like, I I don't think that word means what you think that it means, right? Like set that aside. I'm talking about the simpler definition of that word. We discover our identities in a dialogue or a trialogue between God, ourselves, and others. Okay, this is one of the paradoxes of identity theory. You are a distinct person. You are a distinct individual And you are the product of a family, a community, a culture, a country, etc. Is the truest thing about you that you are a distinct, unique individual or that you're a part of a larger whole? Yes. It's almost, both of those things are true. It's almost as if humanity were created in the image of a triune God. 
So here again, we see this amazing truth that the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God eternally existing as three persons, that truth is impossible for us to fully comprehend, and we can't really understand our own existence apart from a triune God at the center of it. Okay, because God is three in one and because you are made in his image, you are made to exist as both a distinct individual and an intimately connected member of larger communities. You are made to exist as an individual and in intimate relationships. Particular individuality formed in the context of community. And for most of human history, that, uh, that idea was kind of taken as a given. Right? We knew that we were individuals, but that the community and the context around us was hugely important to our identity. But that has been less and less the case in recent decades. We can't go too deep. We can't kind of nerd out on this this morning as much as I want to. But the theory of expressive individualism, that your essential identity precedes your existence in context, and therefore the goal of your life is to throw off old ties and biases and to realize your true self and then unleash him or her on the waiting world, that idea is relatively new in history, and it's tempting because there is an element of truth to it. But when you take expressive individualism and you add a helping of the internet and Instagram plus a side of postmodern identity politics, what you're left with is identity a la carte. And that results in a lot of the anxiety and the anger and the loneliness and the vanity that we see in the world around us and in ourselves. How do you grow into the particular person God made you to be, but do so with love, contentment, and humility? you return to the original dialogue. You recalibrate your identity in relationship with the one who made you and who knows you. And that is exactly what David does in Psalm 139. You'll see all of Psalm 139 is printed in your bulletin. It's a wonderful psalm. I wanted to put the whole thing in there because I want you to take it home with you and read it over and pray through it. We won't begin to exhaust everything that's in Psalm 139 this morning. But look at how that psalm starts. David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, or you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He says, God, you know everything about me. You know everything I do and say and think and feel. You know my past and my present and my future. You know me better than I know myself. You, God, know who I really am. And then notice there's an important subset under that idea in verse 13. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So he made you individually in an intricate particular way. What verses 13 through 16 seem to suggest is that God intentionally made you unique, distinct, with a certain personality type, kind of weird, right? He, he, he made you and he knows everything about you, right? And sometimes when we start to think about identity, one of the mistakes that we can make is we start to compare ourselves to other people, right? And comparison is the thief of joy, Right, instead of recognizing that God made you as you are, we start to say, well, I'm not quite as smart as she is. I'm not quite as humorous as he is. Right, and God says, no, I formed you intricately, 
wonderfully. The first mistake that we often make when we think about our identity is to assume that the person who knows me best is me. That somehow I have the truest knowledge of every data point and criteria, good and bad, that made me who I am today, and that I know my best future journey and destination, that I know what's best for me and how to get there. And Psalm 139 says, no, God knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. You couldn't possibly unravel every, all of the factors of your past that shaped you into the beautiful, terrible, dignified, and depraved person that you are. And you don't know what lies ahead, what it will take to reach the authentic, impactful life that you were meant for. But God knows. He knows you completely. He has searched you out to the very core of who you are. He shined the light of his knowledge into the darkest and deepest alleyways of your heart. God knows who you really are. God knows who I am more than I know myself. Okay, now stop right there. Imagine if the person sitting to your right or to your left knew everything about you. And I mean everything about you. If you could somehow upload into their brains your whole record, including all of your thoughts and all of your desires, your entire identity, what do you think that person would do? Maybe they'd slide over a few seats. (laughs) Maybe they would run screaming from the sanctuary, right? Our greatest fear is to be truly deeply known by someone and to be rejected by them. And so the astonishing thing that David seems to believe in Psalm 139 is that God knows everything about him and God really, really likes him. Verse five, he says, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Right, to really, and to understand that verse, you need to imagine God standing behind you, backing you up, going before you, representing and protecting you, and standing beside you with his arm around your shoulder, saying, this is my person. Right? You see me, you surround me, and you claim me as your own. Or verse 17, this is so good. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. That is, if you could add up all the thoughts that God has about you, they would be more than the grains of sand on the beach. Infinite God, creator, king of the universe, doesn't stop thinking about you. And his thoughts towards you are precious. He values you. He treasures you. He loves you. And he likes you. He sat by your bed last night while you were sleeping. And he saw your sleep face and your bed head. He heard you snoring and he was still there in the morning. That is to say, it was not a one-night stand with God. He doesn't like the dressed-up, recently showered version of you, but then run away when he smells your morning breath. He loves the whole, real, peculiar you. Somehow he knows you completely, including all of your sin, and he can't stop thinking good thoughts about you. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that the all-holy, 
all happy, infinitely interesting God of everything looks at us with all of our dignity and our depravity and loves us completely. How do you know that God likes to be with you? And the answer is Jesus. It is because of Jesus, in and through Jesus. David, he he heard whispers of this as he wrote this psalm, but we get the full-throated final declaration of this truth. Jesus Christ came into the world as a human so that sinful humans could be with God in friendship and love forever. God and sinners reconciled. A mistake that we can make here, another mistake that we can make here is to say that, and this is actually a mistake that both kind of secular psychology and a false version of Christianity make pretty often, is to downplay our sinfulness and thereby cheapen God's love. Right, so what we're not saying here is that God looks at you and he knows you completely and he says, ah, that's sin stuff, no big deal. It's not a big deal, I can look past that, I forgive you, whatever that means. Do you realize that if God says no big deal about your sin, then he's ultimately saying no big deal about your dignity and your entire identity and your future as well. God doesn't say no big deal and look past your sin. He looks at the cross and says, it is finished, paid in full, mine, beloved. At the cross, Jesus took the punishment that sin deserved, including all of the dark parts of your identity, so that God can know you entirely and love you entirely. And that brings us to our second point. The only message that can really transform us into our true selves is that message, the gospel. Only real, deeply rooted grace can lead us to our truest identity. The gospel reframes our ongoing conversation with God such that we can come to him and say, this is who I really am, warts and all, And be certain that he accepts us and loves us and likes us just as we are. With unreserved love and smiling delight, he looks at you. And that sort of relationship will inevitably transform you. When you look at the cross, the two simultaneous truths that you should recognize are, my sin was so significant that it required a severe sacrifice to satisfy the justice of God and... God was so committed to forgiving me and loving me that he provided that sacrifice. But when you look at the empty tomb, when you look at the resurrection, the two truths that we should see are God loves me enough to not leave me where I am. And there is certain hope for me to change. There's hope for the resurrection of my true self, my true identity. And this is what I love about the logic of Psalm 139. It begins with, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then look how it ends in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And that line could actually be translated, see if there is any anxious way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So you see the logic there. You see the logic of the conversation that David is having with God. He says, God, friend, father, you know everything about me. You know me better than than I know myself. And you like me. You love me just as I am right now. But then that leads David to conclude, therefore, search me anew. 
Try me, know my mind and my heart. What is he really saying there? Right? He's saying, reintroduce me to myself. You know everything about me, so search me and show me if there's any grievous, any self-harming, any anxious way within me and lead me to everlasting life, to true life as my true self in deep relationship with you and with other people. Only the gospel, only God's grace given to us in Christ allows us to say, God loves me just as I am, and he loves me enough not to leave me as I am. This is something that makes no sense to the world that we live in, right? And this is, by the way, why we get in all of these identity politics arguments that we can never resolve, right? Because one, one side says, just as I am, I want you to accept me, but don't try to change me. Right? And the other side says, set aside all those true and peculiar things that are true about your identity and just have your identity in Christ and change, be better, be different. Right? And only the gospel says you can love that person in front of you with all of their peculiarities, including their sin and their idolatry, and God and Christ will not leave them there. He likes you right now, and he wants to transform you into something better. How does that happen? Let's end with three practical steps here. Okay, usually I say just take one of these three. Okay, I'm not going to say that this week because they actually kind of work in conjunction with one another. Okay, so these three things work together to begin to reintroduce us, to transform us into our true identities with God. First, prayer. The dialogue that transforms us into our truest identity is prayer. Here comes a brutal quote, okay? The pastor Robert Murray McShane put it this way, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That one stings, right? Because how would my life look different if I actually believed that? I'd probably stop trying to squeeze prayer in at the margins and I would slow down and I would sit before God with a Bible open in my lap and I would say, God, search me and know me. See if there's any anxious way in me and lead me into everlasting life. Introduce me to myself for your glory and for others' good. And I think the times in my life when I've had the clearest idea of my identity and my calling have also been the times in my life when I've slowed down to pray. And if I'm honest, that's not true about me right now. Am I allowed to say that while I'm preaching? Um, second, seek out gospel-defined relationships. Okay, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we talk about it literally every week, okay? And you see last week's sermon, go listen to that if you missed it, okay? But we need relationships that are predicated on this truth of the gospel to begin to transform us in the context of friendship, in the context of love with other people. That, that triangulated conversation is that one between us, God, and others, that trialogue, excuse me. That might require you being courageous enough to go to someone in this church and say, I don't have any friends, but I want to. And it might require you to get counseling. Okay, but here's the thing, okay, here's the catch. Pretty much everybody in the world, every worldview and every religion would say you need relationships. You might need therapy to heal from past hurts and to grow into your truest self. That's a pretty common idea in the world that we live in. But again, only gospel-based, gospel-rooted relationships have the full and coherent power to bring about that change. 
The gospel is the only coherent message by which a friend or a spouse or a counselor can say, I see all of your messiness right now and I love you if you never change and I believe that God can and will change you. That is the the message, the truth that these sorts of relationships have to be predicated on and it's the truth that the, the world is hungry for, doesn't understand. Third, we'll end with the hardest one, okay? Submission. Self-sacrificial commitment. The irony that Jesus teaches us that is so countercultural and so counterintuitive to us is that it's actually in giving yourself away that you learn who you really are and what you're really called to be. Matthew 10, 39, Jesus says, whoever keeps his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The message Bible has a beautiful translation, beautiful paraphrase of that verse. It says, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and follow me, you'll find both yourself and me. The, the, the writer, David Brooks, he has this new book out called The Second Mountain. Right, and basically the premise of this book is that we spend a good portion of our life kind of try, find, climbing the first mountain of what we have defined as success and identity and vocation in our life. And we get to the top of that mountain and usually we realize this wasn't actually success. This wasn't actually what I was called to. And then we go down kind of into this valley of depression and sort of rediscovery. And so he says the second mountain is the person that you actually are and the vocation that you're actually called to. But then the astonishing thing that he concludes in this book is that the way that you find that second mountain is committing yourself to a faith, a family, a vocation, and a community. And listen to his definition of commitment. A commitment is making a promise to something without expecting a reward. A commitment is falling in love with something, then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. He's just saying what Jesus said 2,000 years ago, right? If you seek to maintain your life in the meticulous little way that you want to maintain it, you'll never never actually find yourself or your vocation. But when you begin to, for, to give yourself away to other things, to give other commitments the authority to tell you what is true about you, that's when you begin to discover who you really are. That's difficult to do. But that means that if you never find yourself committed to a community or to a relationship where it feels hard sometimes to continue and you choose to continue anyway, then you're probably not climbing that second mountain yet. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word, the promise of Psalm 139, that you know us completely. And right now, just as we are, that you love us, that you like us, that you delight in us, that you put your arm around us and claim us as your own. You identify with us, or rather, you identify us as your sons and daughters, your friends, your beloved. But I pray more than anything that you would help us to believe that, to walk out of this place believing that truth. Lord, and then from there, would you search us again and introduce us to ourselves? Help us to live as the peculiar, unique people that you have called us to be in the world and in this church 
to love one another and to serve and honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.